COP and the Credibility Gap Environments by Zach Muddle. Every shop, cafe and business, every billboard and bus stop, numerous new temporary adverts and building high canvases, all screaming the same discordant message. Glasgow, during COP26, divergent corporations, some flashy NGOs and the UK government, all competing to reassure us that they're taking serious action on climate change. The environmental protesters across the city generally recognised that for the greenwashing it is. Yet our actions were in orbit around the opaque and exclusive negotiations themselves, in which delegates lived inside such a polite, reassuring fiction that capitalist societies, our corporate overlords, are solving the crisis. The conference recognised, quotes, that the impacts of climate change will be much lower at the temperature increase of 1.5 centigrade compared with 2 centigrade, and resolves to pursue efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 centigrade, requiring rapid, deep and sustained reductions in global greenhouse gas emissions, including reducing global carbon dioxide emissions by 45% by 2030 relative to the 2010 level and to net zero around mid-century as well as deep reductions in other greenhouse gases, end quotes. This slightly stronger restatement of a 1.5 centigrade goal by 2100 is welcome. It could have gone further. 1.3 centigrade would be an immeasurably better outcome. Today's extreme weather comes as early impacts of just over 1 centigrade. Yet what actually counts isn't net global aims. It is the concrete actions to realise such aims. Here we find a series of emission gaps built one upon another. <clears throat> if every country met all their promises to the COPE process, nationally determined contributions, NDCs, for 2030 plus all promises of net zero, the planet would, on some calculations, peak at 1.9 centigrade mid-century and level out at 1.8 centigrade by the end of the century with an upper estimate of 2.3 centigrade. This is dangerously above 1.5 centigrade. Yet most commitments for 2030 would not even put governments on a path for their net zero targets. Assuming the former alone are, are all completed, we would find ourselves on a path of 2.4 centigrade up to 3 centigrade. New net zero NDC and other climate commitments announced around COP26 shaved around 0.2 centigrade off earlier projections. The picture was even bleaker mere months ago. Yet actual policies promised by governments if fully realised, would not even reach the net 2030 NDC's reduction. Instead, they would take us to 2.7 centigrade by the end of the century, with an upper bound of 3.6 centigrade, over three times the warming to date. Climate impacts are not linear. Three times as much heating, with much more time for environmental destruction to build, likely places us in a planet more than three times as dangerous with more than three times as much devastation and with much greater risks of dangerous feedback loops. This nonetheless sounds 
unimaginably better than predictions we may make based only on policies before the 2015 Paris Agreement, which put us on track for 4 centigrade? Are we finally seeing flattening of the emissions curve? The next gap, a very big credibility gap for promised specific policies, is probably impossible to quantify internationally, yet it is likely even bigger than the above. Biden. Less than a year after election, Biden's climate environmental justice promises have been shattered by a series of pro-fossil fuel policies. Two years after the election, the Tories' meagre promise of planting 300 km2 of trees per year by 2024 has translated into 22 km last year and falling. Their Green Homes Grant to retrofit 600,000 homes with insulation and low-carbon heating was outsourced and mismanaged and shelved after only 31,900 homes were upgraded. The 2017 government directive for 61 councils to cut air pollution levels as quickly as possible has led to fewer clean air zones than I can count on one hand. The UK government's official independent climate change committee found earlier this year a similar picture across the board once again. Considering the gap between government targets and policy, they found that of 21 key decarbonisation areas, only four have sufficient ambition and only two have adequate policies. None of the 34 adaptation priority areas had seen strong progress. Internationally, one system of uh, symptom of similar trends is a failure by richer nations to raise the promised $100 billion annual climate funding for poorer nations to transition. For example, the hardly radical IMF found two years ago that $700 to $800 billion is lost per year to tax havens alone. This is before we even consider shrinking the other tax loopholes, let alone a real and necessary attack on the rich. The ten richest people in the world each has more than $100 billion to their name. Bolder promises are welcome, but bigger talk doesn't necessarily translate into more action. The failures are not primarily due to individual politicians such as Boris Johnson, who not long ago dabbled in climate change denialism. They are systemic in origin. Climate action, such as the inadequate promises above, generally costs money and must be paid for. The bulk of wealth in our society is controlled by our bosses, the ruling class. To fund environmental initiatives, some wealth must be taken or withheld from them. Regulations threaten to place limits upon their insatiable drive for endlessly greater profit, and some particularly powerful sections of the ruling class have great invested interests in continuing to burn fossil fuels and belch out carbon dioxide. Negotiations Formal negotiations were to centre on detailed finalising of the Paris Agreement rulebook, including new emissions reporting rules from 2024 and Article 6 carbon markets. Carbon markets theoretically allow countries and companies to sell reductions in carbon emissions or carbon removal to more polluting ones, allowing the latter to offset them. 
previous markets, even their proponents, acknowledge comprehensively failed, often being worse than useless. This new carbon market still financially awards low national targets and historically high, highly polluting industries. Overachievement and pollution reductions can be solved. It fails to complete, completely guard against double counting and with such creative accounting whereby emissions savings could sometimes be counted twice, allowing twice that which was saved to be emitted. Fundamentally, carbon markets rely on non-existent transparency and slow market forces to try to move towards net reductions. We need open, democratic and as fast as possible reduction everywhere possible and as fast as workable and expansion of carbon emissions, carbon dioxide removal to tackle historic emissions. COP26 also agreed processes for working towards new goals on adaptation and on finance for climate mitigations and for loss and damage. Beyond these agreements, in the formal processes around COP26, many new pledges and deals were announced and agreed to. New NDCs plus sectoral deals covering coal, deforestation and methane and a Glasgow Climate Pact. These wider pacts have received far more publicity than the formal negotiations, intensified environmental campaigning globally in recent years, has forced at least more concrete-sounding greenwashing. In 26 COPs dating back to 1995, there has never been an agreement on the need to end the burning of fossil fuels, nor even any specific type of fossil fuels. This gobsmacking emission of an almost axiomatic goal in any form was almost partially remedied this year. Early drafts would have called for governments to accelerate the phasing out of coal. The commitment was vague and had no specific date. Coal accounts were just under a third of fossil fuels burnt by energy and is the most polluting form. There has been an explosion of construction of new coal-fired power stations in recent decades, centred on China and India. Yet, largely symbolic, commitment to ever phasing it out seemed too much. This was dilated to a phase-down of only those coal power stations which aren't abated through carbon capture, usage and storage. Yet CCS would only ever capture a proportion of carbon emitted. Worse, really existing schemes are overwhelmingly for CCUS, whereby the carbon is used for enhanced oil recovery, an energy-intensive process to pump CO2 underground and squeeze even more oil out to then burn. That is worse than useless. At least 23 countries made new commitments to phase out coal power, yet these do not include China, India or the USA, nor Australia, which is by far the largest exporter. They only include five of the top 50 burners of fossil fuel. Oil and gas combined make up over two-thirds of fossil fuels, yet they were not mentioned. Further substitution of coal power with gas a comparatively cheap replacement, 
would not be a cause for environmental celebration. The agreements did not call for a phasing out of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies, but again, it is not fleshed out with dates or, or the agreement did call for a, a phasing out, phase out of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies, but again, it is not fleshed out with dates or specifics. I don't have space yet to cover the COP26 outcomes on transport, deforestation or finance for the global south, but we'll report on those next week, plus more on the protests around COP26. COP26 was no triumph, but the protests were a base to build on. Environment by Zach Muddle. In COP and the Credibility Gap, Solidarity 614, I covered the COP26 outcomes on energy generation. This week I cover other aspects. In transport, the biggest focus was on cars. A pledge of dozens of national and regional governments and automobile corporations committed to end the sale of new cars and vans with internal combustion engines by 2040 globally. This far too late deadline does not address cars that have already been bought before that date or retrofitting. It does not aim to reduce the production and usage of this inefficient and environmentally destructive mode of transport in itself. It doesn't even aim to tackle its extremely rapid growth. Germany, China, the USA and several major car manufacturers didn't even sign up to this week and non-legally binding declaration. No agreements were made in COP26 on promoting walking and cycling, reducing necessary travelling distances or expansion of efficient and electric trains and public transport. Electric cars will continue to have a much greater environmental footprint than any of those. Various countries and governments made promises to support moves to supposedly zero emissions shipping routes. The proposed method is using hydrogen derived from water electrolysis. This is a very inefficient way of storing energy. And talk of reliance on so-called green hydrogen often covers the fact that a more commonly proposed and economically more profitable way of generating the hydrogen is steam methane reforming, using natural gas and releasing at least as much greenhouse gas as burning gas would. There, were, there was no discussion of modern wind-powered cargo ships. They would be considerably greener, but would require a greater te technical change and adaptation of freight practices from just-in-time to allow for variable weather. Nor was there discussion of global levelling up and coordination to minimise unnecessary shipping of goods and parts around the globe. Aviation. Aviation is a particularly dirty form of transport and freight. Unfortunately, large electric and slow carbon planes are unlikely to exist in the near future. Yet a declaration on aviation accepted and took as given that the Quotes, international aviation industry and the number of global air passengers and volume of cargo is expected to increase significantly over the next 30 years, end quotes. It does not even intend to stop airplanes from running on hydrocarbons and belching out CO2. Instead, it aims to tackle aviation emissions by offsetting them. This would be partly through carbon offsetting schemes, 
with all the problems that carbon markets bring. The other method would be through using sustainable aviation fuels, or that is, biofuels, that would supposedly offset emissions when the plants to make the fuels are grown. Many biofuels are sourced through deforestation or processes which degrade the soil, undermining any offset potential. Even genuine offsetting would be the wrong approach. We need to reduce emissions everywhere we can, including by a rapid reduction of aviation while drawing down and storing, outpending and releasing carbon as fast as we can. To halt the climate crises, we need to rapidly end all burning of fossil fuels, primarily used in energy, transport and heating. There was nothing agreed on heating, building, temperature regulation or insulation. Redistribution We need also global redistribution of wealth to the global south to support carbon mitigations, adaptation and loss and damage. We need to open borders to climate and all migrants. We need to stop deforestation and transform agriculture to stop methane and nitrous oxide emissions. The quantity of wealth wielded is indicated is indicating well how serious ambitions to tackle climate crises are. The $100 billion per year by 2020 promised but not delivered by wealthy nations to the global south would have been woefully insufficient. The Conservative International Energy Agency, considering energy alone, estimates $5 trillion a year by 2030 is needed globally. This is 50 times larger than the broken promise to date for, for total finance for all carbon mitigations plus adaptation for the half of the planet who are in developing countries. The like-minded developing countries and the African group early in negotiations did call for a 1.3 trillion per year dollars per year with a quote significant percentage on a grants basis end quotes. This did not make it into the agreement itself. Those ambitions themselves were already severely turned down. The UNFCCC Standing Committee on Finance recently concluded that these nations would require nearly $6 trillion up to 2030, including domestic fuels, including domestic funds, to support just half of the actions in their NDCs. As socialists, we fight to take the wealth of the rich and the ruling class into democratic working class control with a radical radical distribution across society and globally. We demand a vast redistribution from the global north to the global south in grants, not loans. COP26 has seen steps in sketching processes for these discussions as part of UNFCCC, but not decisions. Despite what the Paris Agreement calls for, climate finance to the global south is heavily skewed towards mitigation activities which are generally seen as better financial investments. COP26 upped aims for spending on climate adaptation, but but not as far as called for. While our priority in richer parts of the world is on reduction of emissions, poorer countries produce much less carbon and are disproportionately receiving the brunt of climate change. 
page 6. African nations already disproportionately spend on adaptation. In this context, greater funding on adaptation is a basic component of global climate justice, but one which rich countries generally push back against. Many were pushing for a facility for loss and damage funding, something often seen as akin to reparations for poorer countries suffering the terrible impacts of climate change. The EU and US in particular blocked any such agreement. Who are the rich countries in question? The UNFCCC list is based on those who were members of the OECD in 1992, so it doesn't include South Korea or the oil-rich Gulf states. These continue to fight attempts to be obliged to provide finance. Money spent for mitigation and adaptation within the richest countries does not directly form part of the COP26 negotiations. Instead, agreements cover specific tangible policies. As seen, these two have fallen far short. Climate crises already driving increasing migration within and between countries. We should aim to undercut the conditions which force people to involuntary, involuntarily migrate. But there is only so much adaptation that can be done to an island going underwater. Mitigating the impacts of climate change must involve welcoming climate migrants. There has been a small amount of discussion about this, but not concrete decisions. Indeed, many of the biggest polluters spend twice as much on border enforcement as on climate finance. The 1951 Refugee Convention hasn't even been expanded to include people forced to migrate by climate change. Our sights must be set higher still higher still than that. Any border policy which seeks to permit only certain groups of people necessarily leads to the kind of death and suffering that we see in Calais at the Poland-Belarus border and elsewhere. We must fight for free movements and migrants' rights for all. Little specific was agreed on agriculture within the core COP26 process itself. The Glasgow Leaders' Declaration of over 130 countries did promise to, quote, work collectively to halt and reverse forest loss and land degradation by 2030, end quotes. It promised $19.2 billion of public and private funding. There was a second forest agriculture and commodity trade statement. Within days, the government of Indonesia, a signatory and majority forested country of almost 1 million square kilometres, denounced the agreement and sought to reinterpret it. If the regulation and policy agreed fails to meet the challenge, so does the funding. One investigation found that banks and asset managers based in the EU, UK and US and China have made deals worth $157 billion with firms accused of destroying tropical forest in Brazil, Southeast Asia and Africa since, 20, since the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. USA and China During COP26, the USA and China announced that they had agreed to work more closely on climate change. That announcement has been widely celebrated. They make promises about deforestation and about methane. 
Yet the promises they made about coal didn't impel China to even sign up to the commitment discussed last week to phase out coal, likewise with methane. Xi Jinping, China's president, didn't even show up to COP26. The even more celebrated launch of the Global Methane Pledge with 105 signatories had a foundational flaw. Signatories don't face individual targets for reducing emissions, thus they may sign up without drawing up any goals or policies. Nitrous oxide was not even covered in agreements. The greenwashing didn't end at the end of Glasgow. Much of the media have been celebrating the successes of COP26. Even some campaigning NGOs, eager I assume to offer quick gratification to their donors, have played up the success. To celebrate COP26, you must first lower your ambitions through the gutter. Yet we can make the so far empty promises real and go beyond them. We must and can build a movement to force the needed changes in our workplaces, countries and internationally. Baby steps have been made in that direction within the movements built around COP26. People's Summits In many cities and in the COP26 coalition's People's Summit for Climate Justice, activities around COP26 took the form of a coalition of individuals and groups taking action within one area. They did not cohere into a movement. COP26 coalition was neither democratic nor transparent in its organising. It was not clear who was making decisions, how they were made or how they could be challenged. The summit was relatively open with a reasonable range of perspectives and organisations taking part. Yet they were not put in serious dialogue with each other. Instead of working together, debating out differences as part of a common movement, different groups worked in independent silos alongside each other. That was a big missed opportunity. Within the discussions, in the meetings we organised, and in the wider protests and discussions in Glasgow and beyond, workers' liberty activists raised the urgency of a class struggle approach to environmentalism. There was an appetite for this message, but but where we were not making such arguments, they were largely absent. The left-wing environmentalists in the People's Summit generally recognised that capitalism, with its insatiable drive for profit, is the engine behind climate change. Yet they failed to take the next logical step, recognising that workers organised at work at the place where profit and capital is produced are the key agents with the power to make change happen. Even those advocating engagement with workers often saw trade unions as just another movement in a movement of movements against climate change. Many trade unionists there advocated a state-led just transition with trade unions as a homogenous body negotiating a better deal as part of an already occurring transition. Against this, we advocate a worker-led transition with grassroots organising to transform our unions and movement from the bottom to the top to fight for the environmental changes we need. This struggle would take us into increasing conflict with capital and with its representatives within the labour movement. We organise and educate to face this conflict straight on, to win it and to build a better and ecologically sound society. Environmental organising is no less urgent now than before or during COP26. 
the radical class struggle approach to environmental organising remains the only strategy that can win. Check out your local COP26 coalition hub or XR group, which may already be organising next steps, and advocates a workplace orientation. From the other side, raise environmental issues in your workplace and union.